We're going through Psalm 119, verses uh, 33 and 40, and uh, as I always reiterate, it's uh, my favorite psalm in the whole book of Psalms uh, because it's so rich, and there's there's so much packed into it, and of course it's the longest chapter in the Bible, you know, and uh, been reading a book lately that it's teaching me how to pray God's word and the best place to pick up God's word in prayer is the Psalms. And uh, you're going to find that out really quick with these next eight verses, which are pretty much all prayers uh, to God. So uh, I'll pray real quick and then we'll, we'll start. Thank you, Father, for your word and we just pray that we could hear it and that it would be a sword that not only cuts my heart but the hearts of those who hear to conform us more to your image for your glory Lord and uh, we thank you for your word that it is truthful and that it does build up and that it does guide and direct and lead through the grace and power of your spirit we ask that that would be upon us in uh, Jesus' name, amen. Oh. thought I lost my notes for a minute. I was like, oh no, I'm going to have to do this from memory. <laughs> All right, so um, we'll just go through it real quick and then uh, verse by verse. So we'll start with uh, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I, may, that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your sermon your promise that you may be feared Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. And that's uh, verse 33 to 40. I forgot to ask everybody to stand up in honor of God's word, so forgive me. <laughs> that We usually do that. Um, but it definitely is uh, worthy of honor. So the, the previous eight verses before this, you'll notice that the heart is starting to change even more so because within the first 40 verses, uh, heart is mentioned three out of the five times in this whole psalm, so you can kind of get an idea what the heart of the issue is, that, that God is after the heart. So we'll start with... 1933. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. First, the psalmist is a plea to teach, shows that the need of a teacher and the lack of knowledge. This passage of Psalm 119 starts out with a humble request or prayer. The psalmist is specific in his plea to be taught God's ways, which is a course of conduct under an authoritative rule of what God has commanded we should do. 
He does not trust in his own will or understanding, but petitions the teacher to direct him to the everlasting way. The ways of this world and fallen sinful man may seem wise, but in the end, they lead to the grave with no hope of redemption. The plea and prayer of the psalmist is rooted in the faithfulness of God to hear and the psalmist's response to conform his actions and practices to the end. And that's what it literally means for keep. When you hear keep a lot within this passage, there's a lot of conformity within these next eight verses, whether it's conforming or to be conformed into. The phrase to the end could mean a reward or lifelong vow, and both are pretty applicable. To see God as a lifelong vow and in seeking and doing his will, there is the greatest reward. This is a call to faithful endurance, and we serve a God who is faithful to keep us to the end. This means our lives are not our own, but we have become instruments of God to be used by him alone to usher us into our heavenly home. Hebrews 3, verse 6. And starting with verse 34, God, give, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. The psalmist has just asked to be taught, but that is not enough. He knows he can't comprehend or know the meaning or nature of the way of God. That's what understanding literally means in the Hebrew, so... Isaiah 58, verses 8 to 11. God is merciful and faithful to answer this humble prayer, which is rooted in the bedrock of the word of God. Proverbs 2, 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Makes you wonder where James got that probably from the word of God. To ask for understanding shows a lack of wisdom. And woe to those who do not ask because they are wise in their own eyes. For the wisdom of God they profane and despise. The plea to understand is to conform our sin-marred image back to the original purpose God had for us before the fall. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if we're asking to be conformed, that means that we're not in the right shape. We have to be reshaped, conformity. We had a problem, sin. And if you uh, think you're exempt from it after knowing the Lord, uh, for those who are married, <laughs> as I heard from Paul, I'd like to talk to your wife or your husband <laughs> or your kids. <laughs> 
This plea to be conformed is much deeper than the surface or external level. It is at the heart level. The locus of our very own thoughts, our volition and emotions, and our conscience. This plea echoes the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4-6 and how we do need indeed to seek God with our everything. Does anybody remember the Shema in 6, 4-6? I'll give you a clue. It's the greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your... and to love your neighbor as yourself. And, we, and you see that the heart is starting to be enraptured with and conform to God's divine love. And uh, a really good quote that lines up with this is from uh, Henry Skugel, which says, quote, Behold, on what sure foundation his happiness is built, whose soul is possessed with divine love, whose will is transformed into the will of God, and whose greatest desire is that his maker should be pleased. Oh, the peace, the rest, the satisfaction that attends such a temper of mind. And I don't know if anybody can relate to that before Christ or after but that it that that should be it. Uh, verse thirty-five: Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Now that the psalmist has asked God to teach and give him understanding, now that he has promised to follow God with all with his all, he is ready to walk it out. Many paths in this life can be tread apart from God, and that is exactly where they will lead us apart from God. Proverbs 15, 24, the path of life leads upward for the prudent that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. God is faithful to lead a heart that is possessed by his divine love, a heart that is humble and acknowledges his need and ignorance. Isaiah 42, 16, and I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, and paths they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. The answer is clear from the word of God that he is capable and does accomplish this. The question is, do we delight in his will for our lives? Do we take a high degree of pleasure or mental satisfaction in being led in the way by the good shepherd? Could the pleasures of this world compete with the satisfaction we can find only in the established will of God? Psalms 37 verses 23 and 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. So not only are the steps established, but when we do fall, we have somebody who is lifting us back up and holding us through it. Verse 
verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Previously in this passage, the psalmist promised to keep God's law with his whole heart. Yet he knows apart from the grace of God, his heart can and will not be willing to accomplish this action. The psalmist needs a reviving, and this revival of the heart can only be found in covenant with God. Psalms 19, verses 7 to 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Are you guys noticing how literally God's word is lining up when you interpret it with itself? So it makes you ask, where do you think the psalmist got all of this? From the same author. <laughs> That's my guess. <laughs> Actually, it's not my guess. It's what I know. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Oh, wait, sorry. Even after hearing these great and sure promises of God and his word, which validate his word, we can still be inclined to the pursuits of selfish gain. We have a couple of stories about that, one being the sons of Samuel and Achan. And it's kind of interesting, too, because selfish gain can be translated to the word loot, which is goods or money obtained illegally. Be on guard from the inclinations of your heart. Many have and will continue to fall away due to the love of money and possessions. And that's what this focuses on. But to guard against it, we have a treasured possession that has been purchased on our behalf in which all the wealth of this world could not buy. So my question is, what possesses you? The things of this world or the things of eternity. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The psalmist has given God what we think looks like his all, yet he pleads for God to direct his gaze. The eyes are the window to the soul, and what you consume with your gaze will consume you whole. And it's interesting that he would be saying this thousands of years ago because we are in way different times. We have so much to be distracted from. Back then it was only gossip, but if you were living a godly life in Israel, there probably wasn't too much of that. That would have been your news. <laughs> the town news. The psalmist has asked God in verse 36, to not let the inclinations of his heart be directed to loot. Now he is asking God to turn his, away, his eyes away from things that have absolutely no value or use. 
Many things in this entertainment-driven culture compete for our gaze or affections, and most importantly, divert our gaze from the thing that really matters, life in your ways. Do, do you see that? I think I've seen a quote from Charles Haddon Stur uh, Spurgeon, which isn't in this, where he said, I wish more people spent as much time reading their Bibles as they did the news. That was in the 1800s. Now we have a special uh, distraction device that has everything on it that can divert our gaze, divert our affections. So the challenge is, is do you spend more time in the Word or more time on your smartphone or computers or Internet? And if you are on that, what is the focus? Does it have value? Does it have worth or is it vain? Is it vanity? Because there is a famine going on with the Word of God and it's because our gazes aren't directed. They're distracted. This passage clearly infers that to set our gaze on the various vain things of this world can and will not give us life in his ways. We aren't truly living. Humans are blessed to be living, but not all of us have life because to have life is to know Jesus, and many don't see any value in knowing Jesus. And not knowing Jesus makes us vessels fit only for wrath. But how do you get to know Jesus? What's the number one source? His word is the number one source. And the awesome thing about the smartphone is you can download almost every translation on there. And, and I think you can uh, make it even bigger if you're having a hard time reading. I'm sure that'll happen to me in 20 years. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. But the focus is the important thing. Because before this, what does he say? Observe it with all my heart. Lead, guide, direct, teach. Do you see the progression? Colossians 3, verses 1 to 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above and not on things that are on earth. So the question is, is have we been raised with Christ? We will know by what our mind, heart, feet, and eyes are inclined to. Verse 38. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Now the psalmist is asking God to establish the validity of his promises. That's what confirm means here. He is asking God to confirm his word, that God would give him understanding, lead him in the path of his commandments, incline his heart to God's testimonies, and turn his eyes from vanity and give him life in his ways. That's what he's asking God to confirm. 
those are the prayers before this that he's been praying. God will always answer these prayers from the heart for the purpose of confirming his holiness through his ways. 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-one, and this is David speaking. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. The psalmist approaches God with a title of humility in a position of lower authority or stature as a servant. He says, confirm to your servant. He approaches God in humility. Do you see how he's continually approaching him in humility for not being able to know, not being able to walk, not being able to see? It sounds like he's utterly helpless here and in need of some really big help. Wisdom would dictate that in light of who God is, that is how we should approach him in prayer. God is God and there is none like him. He is holy, which that's what holy means. You can't compare anything to him. You can try to, but it all falls short. The incomprehensible glory of God. And the end result of God confirming his word is a profound feeling of respect, also known as fear. Confirm to your servant your promises that you may be feared. Psalm 130, verses 3 to 5. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. There is a blessing in fearing the Lord echoed all throughout Scripture, and there should be because God is holy and commands awe and respect. A bad stigma has been placed on the fear of God within the American church in the last generation or so, and the result has been irreverence, which leads to manifold debauchery. Because we don't understand what fear is. It's a respect. It's the same respect you would give your parents, but even more so because he's God. The best thing I can always equate it to is like when you look at creation and everybody has something in creation that they really love that always puts them in awe. Some people like to stare at the stars. Some people like the biology. Some people like the geography. But have you ever had that moment where you've looked at something and you've totally been floored? You were in awe. You were like, wow, that is awesome. It's way bigger than you, yet it's a part of God's creation, and God created it. So like I always say, think of that awe and multiply it by ad infinitum or infinity, and you still won't get to the end of what awe is going to be like when you see God in all his fullness which is incomprehensible to us right now. That's the respect God commands. That's the awe that God commands. That's the fear 
that God commands. And when you have that respect and you go into his word, it's a lot more than just a book. You treat it a lot better than you would anything else that you open and read from. You let it dictate how you act, live, the ways. Verse 39, turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Now this could have to do with verse uh, 22 which is tied into verse 23, take away from me scorn and contempt for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Oh, I, I got it right. It's hard to recall Psalm 119 because there's a lot of repetition. <laughs> but think about that. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. And seeking to serve God, we will be reproached by the unfaithful. The world will not honor God or his ways and will turn against those who honor God and his ways. Reproach is a state of dishonor. We should not trade the honor of the world for enmity with God. I would rather be dishonored in this world than be dishonored by God. God's ways and rules are ultimately good. And Jesus even says, those who, des or let's say the Holy Spirit, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Anybody remember the last word? Persecuted. Jesus said, if they hate me, they will also hate you. And I mean, there's, it's really hard to hate Jesus because it's not like he, did anything sinful against anybody. It's pretty easy to hate your fellow man, but Jesus, they had to find accusers. He was above reproach. So they had to get a false testimony against him. But that is a guarantee. If you desire to honor God, you will be persecuted. And if you look at the context of this psalm, it has to do with his fellow men. And it could even have to do with people within the nation who claim to know God, but don't follow in his ways. Their heart's not inclined to his testimonies. Verse, uh, oh, here I got them all mixed up. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me light, life. The heart that is humbly and wholly devoted to God has a persistent and strong desire to serve God. This desire grows in and through faith. It is not empty belief nor faithless duty, but a willing desire to trust God and in trust obey what he has commanded to be accomplished by his hand through grace. Isaiah 5.16, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. 
So there is this great longing. It is interesting that it says, in your righteousness, give me life. How could God in his righteousness give us life if he is a holy God? If he demands justice, if he is perfect, how is that possible? Well, thankfully, the psalmist is so humble that he recognizes that righteousness is not in his own life. Clearly, from the last seven verses, you can tell that he needs a lot of help. So then where is this righteousness to be found? Where else could it be found? Where was God's justice and righteousness perfectly executed? What is one of the most awe-inspiring things we can look upon that demands and commands respect and reverence? The cross. So you can see even in the Old Testament with the same author, they were looking forward to something that was not a righteousness that was not their own. But do we recognize that? If we go through this, this is a, I would encourage you to actually pray it. It's good to pray it. Do we ask God to teach us daily? to give us understanding that we can observe it with our whole heart, to lead us in the path of his commandments, his will, which we delight in, to incline our heart to his testimonies, what he testifies to be true, his will, and to, not to selfish gain, to turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in his ways, to confirm to us his promise that he may be feared, to turn away the reproach that we dread for his rules are good, and do we long for his precepts and ask that in his righteousness give us life? Think about that. If you were to do that every day, I guarantee it'll keep you humble and dependent upon God. You know, and uh, the, the funny thing is, as I was going through this, it, it, it cut me so deep that I even have to hold back the tears right now because I have to honestly say no. And if we're honest, the word of God should cut us like a sword. But it's good. Because what's the end result? It's his ways. It's everlasting life. It's joy. It's delight. It's a fire, a holy fire from a holy God, devoted to his holy word for his holy purposes. It's a restoring of an image. It's a conforming back to what God created us to be. It might come with scorn and contempt, but guess what? It makes us his treasured possession, and then we have an even greater treasured possession in heaven. So great that the things of this world are vanity and worthless and rubbish. Uh, thank you, and I have the last song and then the benediction.